the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. This week's Tree the Back podcast. We're two weeks into the season and question marks already begin to hang over Ollie and Frank. Jurgen Klopp goes anti giving it the big gun by screaming at his staff in a hashtag classy gesture. Harry Kane turns provider for his son. Kieran Gibbs won't be doing anything again if Seamus Coleman has anything to do with it. And Patrice Everett tells it like it is in more ways than one in the Sky Studio. We'll be rounding up an absolute goal fest of a weekend that had 43 goals. But more importantly, 75 passes from Thiago Alcantara. I'm joined this week by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? Good evening, lads. Yeah, all great. Thanks. In part two of the show, we'll be speaking to our Corkman in Seville, journalist Alan Feely, to chat about the season ahead for Real Madrid, Lionel Messi and the other protagonists that make up the La Liga. But first... Onto the Premier League, and there's only one place to start, Phil. Um, it's been an interesting couple of days for Liverpool, and I'm sure you've been dying to get a hold of the mic from so, cash strapped stagnation um, and the FSG out brigade beginning to come to the fore. Thiago, and kind of out of nowhere, Diogo Jota arrived in the space of 48 hours. Um, they then met a Chelsea side that didn't seem overly keen to take them on in an attacking sense, like Leeds were and paid the price as a result when going out to 10 men. So we saw Thiago as well sooner rather than we thought we would, and he's already breaking records and looking like decent business. So how would you sum up the past week from a Liverpool perspective? Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's been an awful lot happening and an awful lot has happened in the space of time since we were here last in the podcast talking about Ismail Asar being a, the only likely addition Liverpool could make to um, them taking Jota out of nowhere. And I suppose... The past week has been a good week to put to bed any sort of lingering doubts that people somehow had about this Liverpool outfit, the team that won the league by 18 points last season and got the highest points total in the history of the club. Uh, some of them, some of the fans of a more nervous disposition were starting to get a bit jittery uh, between the lack of transfer business and and how, how things went against Leeds. Um, I think a lot of those fears should now be put to bed for people who were maybe getting a bit worried. The, the business looks good. Thiago and Jada both and like you said Chelsea didn't really put up much of a fight but that's the sort of result you want going there second game of the season a few of Chelsea's new expensive toys on the pitch and Liverpool kind of put them to bed and they looked like a team who finished whatever it was n- nearly 30 points ahead of them or whatever it was in, in the wash last season um, so yeah I think it's been a really good week to put to bed any of the kind of louder moaners on the mm. on Liverpool Twitter um, yeah, good week. <clears throat> what was your reaction to um, Diogo Jota? Because initially, when it, when the reports started to begin to appear um, on Friday evening, if you were to draw up a short list of Wolves players that you kind of put a tick beside whenever you watched them, he was hardly scratching the top five because they have, you know, Raul Jimenez, Adam Triore more so has, has been a kind of half linked with Liverpool. Um, in the Twitter sphere over the past couple of, of, um, of months, 
Um, Jota then kind of came out of nowhere and it's probably my fault more than anyone that I didn't really pay too much heed to him when he was at Wolves but um, all by all accounts his kind of profile uh, is similar to that of, of Manny and Salah before they came in and I think um, what fans are kind of hoping what happens is um, Klopp's does something similar with him as, as he did with them Yeah, if you read the dispatches the Thiago signing didn't have a whole lot to do with the the kind of analytics crew that that's so well thought of on Twitter, Michael Edwards and the lads. It was more to do with the fact that Thiago's a brilliant player and he was available. The Jota signing has that kind of deep analytics, almost Moneyball-esque type approach all over it in that, like you said, Kev, he doesn't stand there head and shoulders above all the rest of Wolves' attacking talent. Absolutely, in their first season or two in the Premier League, looked like a good player. I'd be lying if I said... I'd ever considered him for, for, for Liverpool and he hadn't been mentioned seriously anywhere. And um, by all accounts, he, he was on a short list of three with Sarr and um and Jonathan David as well. But um it's it, it's a funny one because it kind of came out of nowhere, a bit like the Fabinho um signing after the Champions League final in 2018. But then, like you said, when you look at the numbers, it seems to make sense. It looks like a punt on him making a step. Now, if he makes the same sort of step as Sadio Mane, Liverpool will be very happy indeed. But it's a punt on potential. Um, the fee doesn't exactly reflect that. It's it's 43 million. But I think the way it's structured in this, I think uh, 10% only up front in the first year and Liverpool will be getting money back for Kiana Hoover as well, going in the opposite direction. So I think all of these things that kind of came together, he was good on the profile uh, and the type of player they like. And he was good in terms of the the economics of the deal worked, kind of came together to to bring him forward. It'll be remain to see how he gets on. Um, I mean, I don't think he's going to be upsetting that front three too much this season, but he's still mm. only 23. He's got three years in the Premier League and a year in the Championship under his belt. Um, and he's still only 23. So loads of scope for him. But um, yeah, a little mm. bit from left field. Yeah, I was really surprised uh, looking at his stats, how much he had played uh, in England so far. He's very experienced for his age um, and I think he's probably been overlooked by a lot of people. Um, what did you make of the game on Sunday? Um, it was largely uneventful really until the until the sending off. Um, I suppose the most interesting thing from a Liverpool standpoint was seeing Fabinho um, at centre-back and he seemed to have done well enough for Liverpool to call off any any hope of a, another centre-back coming in. Yeah, like he, like a lot of people, when the team was named, I was a little bit spooked at the idea of Werner getting the run at Fabinho, uh, but he, he played really well, really aggressive front foot, and that handled the threat of Werner well, especially the way Chelsea played, kind of Werner was their only threat, so Fabinho could be that aggressive. I am a small bit worried though. Fabinho as a fourth choice centre half to me is absolutely fine. If he's if he is like fourth cab off the rank, that's grand. But the problem is the third choice centre half in Joel Matip is too injury prone. So Fabinho is essentially going to be third choice a lot of the time. I mean, Matip was only fit enough to start nine league games last year. So Fabinho as a third choice centre half worries me a bit more than as a fourth choice. But maybe that's kind of splitting hairs and. Um, the game itself, like I just thought Chelsea didn't bring a, a whole lot and I know they have a lot of injuries and they're trying to bet in a new team, but I thought they gave Liverpool much more of a challenge in all the games they played them in last season, League, Cup and Super Cup, um, than they did 
uh, on Sunday. I mean, I thought they kind of folded their tent pretty early. The red card didn't help, but so sloppy to concede so early in the second yeah. half. Um, and that put the game to bed. I mean, like, I know the Mane goal complete, or the second goal rather, completely killed it. But it's like, the only jeopardy there was if Chelsea could get into the last half an hour and they'll all gamble on a few of the attacking players. But um, Liverpool, they would be very happy to have gotten Chelsea at a time when they were uh, laid down by injuries, not uh, assimilated into new players, and then an approach like that. In the, on the other side of the ball, as Phil was saying, it's, it's pretty evident that Chelsea have a couple of problems. They have a goalkeeper problem. They arguably have a defensive problem, which remains to be seen if Thiago Silva or Ben Chilwell can help plug that. They spend a ton of money in attacking areas. Um, they have a lot of players now that you'd wonder how they're going to fit into a system that works. Would you be at all concerned for Chelsea if they continue gifting goals um, and fail to solve some of the problems that they kind of had last year as well, especially with Kepa in goal? I'd be concerned with the approach they took on Sunday. As Phil mentioned, it was very pragmatic. Um, it was essentially a 4-5-1 and just hoping that Werner could run past Fabinho, which he only really achieved once in the whole game. Um, I assume that when Pulisic and Ziyech are fit, it'll be more of a 4-2-3-1 with Havertz uh, just playing off Werner. Um, but I think Lampard is still a bit naive and inexperienced to be dealing with such a level of talent that he now has uh, at his disposal. So I'm, I would be very concerned for them uh, overall. If you look at how he treats, you know, some of the younger players as well. He did say a couple of weeks ago that he's not here to be an academy manager. He's here to win. But for me, if you're playing against Liverpool, the way to get at them is to, you know, start a an attacking pacey winger at one of those fullbacks. And he has that in Hudson Odoi, who he doesn't seem to trust at all. But with Pulisic and Ziyech not available, for me, it was a no-brainer. So once I saw that he was only on the bench, I kind of felt that that played into Liverpool's hands straight away and really gave them the upper hand. And, you know, Christensen and Zuma as a pair have let him down so many times before he left Rudiger out of the squad completely. So I I feel that he's, you know, not learned really from the mistakes he made last season. He dropped Kepa towards the end of last season for Caballero. And obviously he's, he's signing this French goalkeeper this week. But um, I think to persist with Kepa at the start of this season has let him down in both games. Yeah. Um, so again, similar to Ali, when we get on to him later, it's, he's not really learning mm. from the mistakes of last season. Uh, and that will concern me when everybody is fit. Um, but I think he'll have enough individual talent available to him to, yeah. to probably get across the line in off games. And Werner has looked very sharp. I don't think he's done Havertz much favours starting him in both of these games, to be honest. As a 19-year-old coming into the league, you know, I thought he'd start him on the bench against Brighton and definitely thought he'd start him on the bench uh, against Liverpool. He's thrown him in out of position, really. Um, and it's not really done him any favours and he's looked quite nervous on the ball. Um, he after lockdown for Leverkusen, he played as a false nine further up the pitch, and now he's having to come deeper, which wasn't really his game uh, in the last six months of last season when he produced his best form for Leverkusen. So um, I was surprised he did that, as well as playing Loftus-Cheek on the right against Brighton, which didn't work at all. So um, whether he can learn from those mistakes as the season goes on, I think Ziyech and Pulisic will obviously make a huge difference. Chilwell as well at left back. 
And I'm interested to see how Tiago Silva will go. I have a feeling it'll be more of a Lauren Blanc situation at United rather than <laughs> somebody who will come in and, you know, take the league by storm at 35. But listen, he's very experienced um, and it'll be interesting to see who he chooses to partner him. I thought tomorrow was actually excellent in the second half when he came on. He was the, mm. the best Chelsea defender in the whole match. Um, but again, Lampard kind of only brought him on because of the 10 men. Um, and like I said earlier, those two centre-backs have let him down so many times. To, to persist with them is, is a bit naive. I'm going to be really interested to see, um, like you said, when Pulisic and, and ZH come back into the fold, what he does with Mason Mount, because he's quite a similar player and they play in a similar position to Kai Havertz. And I wonder, will he have a little bit of blind loyalty to Mount now that he, he's been through him with Derby? He kind of helped him along last year in his first season and he's played the first two games now and he's kind of he's like you said he moved Havertz or Havertz to the right hand side of an attack last week um you know it'll be interesting to see if he continues that loyalty to Mount um when everyone is back in because you'd imagine Pulisic will be a certain start whenever he's available and then when however long it takes CH to come back in um and that leaves kind of one spot left for Havertz and Mount I can't see him choosing Mount over Havertz at, at this point, to be honest, yeah. um, especially considering Havertz's best position um, would be just off the striker. Um, Mount, in fairness, at Derby, he played a much different role than what he's been asked to do at Chelsea. He was playing much deeper and he you know, played very well for Lampard, but I just feel that there is a mm. big gap in quality between himself and Havertz. Um, I know Mount came out a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, he wasn't overly happy with things that were going on at the moment and he hoped to play this season. But at the end of the day, I think for the fee and the talent that you have with Havertz, especially when everybody is fit, I think that system could be perfect. I think the bigger issue is probably whether Kante can bring back the form he had two to three years ago beside Kovacic. I think Kovacic is a certain starter for Lampard at this stage. Um, or whether they go for Declan Rice in the last couple of weeks in the transfer window, because I just think that Kante is looking a bit tired and leggy now these days, even though he's only in his late 20s. But still, Chelsea needs such a high-quality DM if they're going to persist with this formation, which is basically five attackers. (laughs) Um, And then Chilwell and James uh, from the wings uh, at the full-back positions. So it'll be interesting to see if they make a move there. Um, which I think they will. Phil, Liverpool have had their fair share of goalkeeping issues over the, over the years. Do you think Lampard will be give Kepa a chance, or will Edward Mendy come straight in? I like. I think like Lampard made this decision himself, as Enda said at the end of last season. He dropped him at the business end for the games that mattered, or at least the the games that ended up mattering in the FA Cup final and stuff like that. I think Kep is probably beyond saving at this stage. Um, I think Lampard has done him absolutely no favours by playing him again instead of this season. I mean, you've already drawn a line under it last season by dropping him for the cup final. Play Caballero. And like the worst Caballero is going to do is what Kep has done in the first two games if you weren't going to get the business done for a, a, a goalkeeper. Uh, and I think I think Mendy's going to come in and, and start. I, I can't see any other situation other than him being number one. I think Kep is just too damaged at this stage. Um, but I don't know why it wasn't made more of a priority um, earlier in the window because it was like he, he was literally the worst goalkeeper I've ever recorded for um, <laughs> for his shots to goal ratio in the Premier League. I don't know how they didn't make it more of a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I think I think he's he'll be out on his ear. 
And if if they were able to find a buyer, I'd say they'd be quick enough to get rid of him. But I'd say he'll probably just warm the bench. I think with the money now, they've invested him. Um, and a lot of people have been kind of using David De Gea as a, an analogy when he first started um, under Sir Alex Ferguson. But I think with, at least with De Gea, you could see um, some positives in his game that was worth giving it a chance. And obviously it, it paid off uh, as the seasons went on. Um, speaking of Man United and the Palace continue to be your bogey team. Um, Wilfred Zaha continues to look like a, a player who should be at a bigger club probably. Um, what went wrong, in your opinion, at the weekend? Is this an illustration of deeper problems, for, you know, average players? Or did he just kind of lay a duck egg? Because it looked mild off the pace with virtually no pre-season. Um, and in fairness, Palace had already had 90 minutes uh, and a win under their legs. Yeah, it was a very worrying turn of events on Saturday afternoon. Not really the result, which, you know, Palace know what they're about. They played well last week um, and they won at Old Trafford last season with the same tactics. But I I think um, the bigger issue was with United tactically. If you look at the average position of the players, uh, Lindelof and Maguire were too far apart. Fossum, Mensa and Shaw were right on top of, the, of uh, James and Rashford. And the biggest problem of all was McTominay was too far forward up the pitch. So United basically didn't play with a defensive midfielder. Uh, he made a couple of decent recoveries in the second half, but only because he was so far out of position. And if you look at last season, Matic came in and added a lot of balance, um, as he did when Solskjaer first took over. And to be honest, that would have been a prime position for me to improve on this season, but it looks like they're not going to at this stage. Um, Matic and Fred actually both start tonight, so I was surprised one of them didn't start in that defensive midfield position, especially... Post-lockdown, McTominay didn't feature at all, really. Um, so I thought of, sort felt that Solskjaer had figured that that was the prime position for United to improve on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you add in the fact that, you know, Shaw's just coming back. He looked pretty poor. Fosse Mense isn't really going to worry anybody. And the biggest issue for me is that Lindelof-Maguire partnership is just too slow on the recovery. They're too similar. Maguire is a better version of Lindelof, if you like, but Lindelof is too poor in the air, can't recover, and just always has a mistake in him. So it's interesting that Bai and Maguire, Maguire have both started tonight, and I think that will be a potential partnership, or else uh, Maguire and Tuanzebi going forward, as well as either Fred or Matic taking that um, deep-lying midfield role. And then it's Fernandez with either Pogba or Van de Beek. But um, it's the most worried I've been in terms of United's tactical approach. Obviously, they're going to be very tired. They really only had about 10 days pre-season. AWB was quarantined. Pogba had the virus. You know, (laughs) Maguire was locked up in Greece for a while. (laughs) So it it was just one of those summers, you know, where everything that possibly could go wrong did go wrong. And the players look actually quite flat. A couple of them said after the match, we need new signings just to give everybody a lift. So it's almost like they've been expecting more players to arrive just to kind of give perk everybody up, similar to how Fernandez did in January. So it was all a bit uh, worrying and, and slightly miserable on Saturday night. Um, not not so much the result, as I said earlier, yeah. but just the whole feel around the performance, uh, the energy levels, the tactical approach. Um and if they don't get a couple of players in the next couple of weeks, it's it's going to be a very, very long season, I think, for United. 
do you think that'll happen? Um, I mean, that's kind of been the narrative for the summer that, or for the past couple of transfers, really, that Edward, Edward Ward tends to dip his, uh, or grind his heels and wait till the last second. Yeah, I mean, listen, in the last three or four years, United have always been, you know, two or three players short of competing. Um, and I don't think that's changed, but... Uh, it sounds like he's making a right hames of things, really, according to all the reports. Dortmund were confused. Porto say they've not actually received a formal bid for Alex Tellez. There's links to centre-backs, but they can't get the amount of centre-backs they have in the books off them, obviously. Um, <laughs> the Roma manager came out on Saturday night saying, you know, he wants Chris Smalling to sign, uh, which I think would be great for him and United to be honest to get some money in the door but now the reports are United are going to try and use that, that to their advantage but ultimately it's it's all very last minute.com really at this stage for United and I think they'll probably get a left back in the door um, we might see something a bit um, I was going to say left wing in a right winger but <laughs> out of the blue I think uh, for a right winger um if it was me personally and Sancho was was off the table completely, I'd probably be putting in a bid for Hudson-Odoi considering his situation at Chelsea and that level of talent that he has. Um, but again, I, I said last week, uh, I was told that United were in for a centre-back, a left-back and a right-winger. Now I've just been told it's a left-back and hope for the best <laughs> in, in, in other parts. So, uh, you know, if... If Roma come for Smalling and they can somehow get one of Rohor Jones off the books and maybe Dan James to Leeds, we'll see something. But I'm not overly confident that we'll see much moving in the next couple of weeks. But again, you know, United have surprised me before. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. And uh, yep. who, do you think, who do you think is the least qualified for his job, Solskjaer or Ed Woodward? Oh. Uh, well, Woodward and Matt Judge, probably. I mean, in fairness, Ollie, he has been in management for nearly a decade now, you know? Obviously, with United under 23s and then Molde and then, you know, Cardiff and back to Molde. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, somebody threw out the question during the week, if Solskjaer was sacked tomorrow, would anybody hire him? Which I thought was a bit harsh because you could actually say the same for maybe Lampard, maybe Arteta. Yeah. They are all very unproven, technically. Yeah. Um, Solskjaer does have more experience on paper than quite a few managers who are getting big jobs at the moment. But, you know, it was what disappointed me slightly at the time was once they got rid of Mourinho, they did have a clean slate and say, right, we have time to pick somebody. Solskjaer is just going to fill in for the moment. Um, and I would have left it till the summer, to be honest, at that time. Yeah. And then after the PSG match, everybody got a bit carried away, including Ed Woodward. And then he got the deal and it, it all fell a bit flat. Yeah. What I do think about Solskjaer is when it does end, he will leave the squad in a much better shape than he found it, which I think you can't say about LVG, you can't say about Mourinho. And I think the next manager will profit a lot from the work that he has done. I think a lot of United fans feel that he's doing the right things in terms of players he's trying to get out, players he's trying to bring in. But his in-game management and his tactical setup, as I mentioned earlier, for the game at the weekend, for example... Yeah. It's still very naive. It's still, you know, it, it, it's just very confusing at times to try and figure out what they're trying to do. It's it's still a bit 
too predictable against the low block, especially. And Palace were ready for that, um, and were ready to hit United on the counter. I, I, it'll be interesting to see what he does in the next couple of weeks. I think Van de Beek is technically a superior footballer in the final third than somebody like Fernandez. So I would hope that he would get close to that front three. I'd give Pogba a break because he was just woeful at the weekend and, you know, recovering from the virus. I don't know what influence that had or maybe he's just not up for it. Um, so there's a bit of that. Uh, and then he has a decision at centre-back who who partners Maguire. And then obviously Henderson over De Gea um, is still a question mark as well. I actually thought Henderson would start at the weekend. He's starting tonight. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes. Yeah. So... Yeah. Listen, there there are options there for him to change it around, um, but it's it still is tough going, yeah. But who's worse at their job? It's it's still got to be Woodward. <laughs> he's he's the problem, you know. I mean, it's you know it, Matt Judge shouldn't be in that position. Arguably, Solskjaer shouldn't be in that position, uh, and really Woodward shouldn't be in his position. But what I don't get about Woodward is he's so good on the commercial side. I don't know why he would just kind of want even want to be in the involved in the football yeah. side you know yeah. he could easily just be in the background being the guy bringing in the deals bringing adding all these commercial partners and then you know leaving a director of football um in charge of the transfers and then if they go wrong he can just point at him and say well that's not my problem yeah but his ego seems to be a huge problem i think and kevin we said this about a year ago when we did our podcast once ribalta left the club who was just a perfect candidate to be united's director of football um, he had done it at Juventus. He does it now at Zenit. Um, I think once he left United, I think it was pretty obvious that they had no interest in hiring a director of football because they already had somebody internally there who was ready for the job and they didn't give it to him. So um, it, it, it's kind of this soundbite that's thrown out every transfer window or every few months to keep people happy or where looking for a director of football. And then this random thing happened last January where it was Ferdinand Fletcher and Evra <laughs> who were all linked with the job, who have no experience at all. But, you know, it, it felt like kind of just an effort to keep everybody happy. Um, so it, it's all a bit of a shambles. Until United have a proper director of football yeah. in place, none of this will be fixed. Um, and it doesn't really matter who the manager is as far as I'm concerned director it's become the most important role in football as far as i'm concerned if you look at every successful team in the last decade or so they've had a director of football in place um and for united not to have that for a club of their stature um is a bit of a mess and until that's fixed nothing positive i think will happen long term Phil, a quick word on Everton um, before we sign off for uh, for Ellen. They've gone through a, a couple of revolutions lately, but they seem to finally struck the right note with these latest signings. Even Seamus Coleman is starting to look like a new man. Yeah, um, I have to say it's all distinctly un-Everton, isn't it? And part of me is just waiting for it all to crumble and for them to succumb to the inevitable uh, gravity that is being Everton. But at the minute, it's, it's fun. I mean, they've got a manager who I really like. They've made some exciting signings and they're playing great. Calvert-Lewin, I think, if he was Irish, might be the greatest Irish centre-forward we've ever had. He just looks perfect for a system with a team that loves crossing and that is a bit kind of, a, a bit robust. Like, I, I really like him and it shows the, the, the power of perseverance as well because for his first couple of years in the league, he didn't really look like he was at it. But they stuck with him, they stuck with him and he's really coming good. And they're, I mean, 
their, their problem still is like Ancelotti was dragging Yerry Mina around the place um, for how bad he is. So they're they're looking for a centre half to go alongside Michael Keane, uh, and Pickford is still Pickford. So there might still be a bit of everything in them yet, but at the minute they're a heap of fun. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, Pickford is still the big concern. Um, yeah. Even for those couples of goals they conceded at the weekend, he just seemed to dive over the ball or dive too late. But I'd agree with Phil overall. They're very fun to watch. Uh, Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison are, are a great combination up front with Hammers just behind them. I think Ducore and Alan, uh, they started quite poorly actually at the weekend compared to their performance against Spurs. But... Um, they're still excellent additions, um, and I think you know we're kind of seeing a, a re- revived Seamus Coleman, which is great to see from an Irish perspective. So it is a lot of fun, um, and the squad is quite strong now as well. Uh, you look at Bernard coming in, for example, um, they still have Moise Keane, even though he's been linked with a return to Juventus. Uh, Sandro somehow is still knocking around these days, although he was a good player in Spain a few years ago. So uh, it's all looking pretty good, I think, for Everton. Uh, and Ancelotti seems to have the balance that he's been kind of searching for, even at his time at Napoli. He didn't quite um, nail that down. So it's it's definitely an exciting time to be an Everton fan, for sure. I can't who wrote it. I can remember his name. Rob Little. He died. He ran away and left his wife for a young and depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's a office small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're joined by our Cork men in Seville, Alan Feely. How are things, Alan? Hope you're well. Very good. How are you? Thanks for having me, Kevin. Good now. Um, so we wanted to take a look at the Spanish season ahead and when we're usually previewing La Liga we're ordinarily talking about the raft of new signings that have come in across the big clubs um, the dynamic between Real versus Barcelona usually Ronaldo versus Messi whether or not Atletico can break the mould there with Diego Simeone but this year feels so much different given what has happened over the past few months with Barcelona especially and we'll get into them in a second really but let's start with the champions um, they've had a quite enough summer in terms of arrivals. It's been mostly departures um, with the likes of James Rodriguez and Gareth Bale leaving. Ashraf Hakimi left for Inter, even though he spent last season at Dortmund. Sergio Reguilon has left um, and he wasn't there either last year. Are Madrid kind of looking over the garden fence at Barcelona and the turmoil there and thinking, do you know what, if we just keep the car on the road this season, we'll be fine? Um, yeah, there's kind of a strange feeling in Spain, to be honest, um, regarding La Liga, because normally they're so assured with how strong the league is, but this season, with the lack of incomings and the fact that Thiago Alcantara has gone to Liverpool, you know, James Rodriguez is playing for Everton, Gareth Bale's gone to Spurs, and, you know, Neymar and Mbappe are both playing in France, and the fact that Lionel Messi wanted to leave Barcelona as well means that 
there's not the same talent in Spain that there usually is. And the fact that there was no real signings over the summer window um, for Spanish clubs. Um, so in this kind of context, I think Madrid are definitely best placed to retain their title. They're overwhelming favourites. Um, I think the best squad, you know, player by player, it's quite strong and it's quite in-depth. Um, and they also have youngsters there like uh, Rodrigo and Vinicius and even someone like Eden Hazard, who didn't play that well last season, but can really um, promise to improve this year with last season's experience under their belts. Um, and Martin Odegaard as well, of course. Um, so they have a nice blend of kind of experience and youth as well. They're very settled and they have a winning know-how throughout the spine of the team. You know, world-class players. Um, so yeah, they're, they're definitely best placed. The only worry I have for Madrid is that they're too reliant on kind of the three key figures of Sergio Ramos, Luka Modric and Karim Benzema. Um, because like they're all, they're both all getting on a year, they're all getting on in years now, and they're all very very important to the team last season. Um, but you know, this could be the year where things kind of slow down. The body gives up for them, maybe you know, and then maybe they mightn't be as strong as they think they were because they're, they're not a vintage Madrid team, but they're the best team in the league for me. I was just going to ask that really because you know we're so used to seeing. Uh, Madrid sign all these players and kind of have that reputation for, for Galacticos and you look across the squad and especially now with Bale gone um, given he was a, a record transfer uh, a couple of years back um, they've no real kind of superstar if, if, if you want to put that way on it I know they obviously have some serious talent there but there's no real um, household name across the world has there been any kind of frustration from Madrid fans t- to that, that they're not out, you know, signing the likes of Kylian Mbappe and whoever else to kind of keep that Galactico uh, impression up? Well, I think there's a confidence in Madrid that, you know, they have the strongest squad in the league. And there's also a strong link that uh, Mbappe will be coming there next season. That's kind of a general belief in Spain that the pipeline is being laid now for a kind of assault next summer on the transfer market. And also, in many ways, I feel like Madrid kind of defined themselves by their great rivals, Barcelona. And the fact that that club's been in such disarray, I think it makes the Madridistas much more content with how things are going. Because they're kind of like almost like an ocean of sanity, kind of this chaotic, uh, this chaotic situation at the top of the league, you know. We saw last season, especially in the first half with Zidane, Madrid were very pragmatic in their approach and we actually saw a lot of that again on Sunday. Do you think he can maintain that going forward? Um, you know, he seems very cagey when it comes to bringing on, you know, Jovic, who's now been linked to a return to Eintracht Bankert. Mariano can't get a look in. Brahim Diaz has moved on. Do you think Zidane can afford that this season in terms of their pragmatic approach and keeping out the fringe players so often? Um, yeah, I think that Zidane was kind of insulted when he left um, in the summer of 2018 because a lot of people were kind of branding him as a man-manager and they weren't giving him the coaching credentials that he feels he deserves. So I think that since he's come back, he's been very intent on installing a very strong spine and a very strong defensive makeup uh, to the team. And that really came to the fore in the second half of last season. Um, and I also think that he has such power in the club now because of the manner in which he left and when he came back, that he's able to shove these, you know, big names to the side. Like we saw Gareth Bale, 
we saw with James Rodriguez, and now we're seeing it with Luka Jovic, as you mentioned, and the two other strikers. But I think that the situation with Jovic is kind of linked to Karim Benzema because he was so good last season and they're so reliant on him. And the system which they're playing at the moment only has one striker. So I don't think that he has faith in Jovic as a, another option, if that makes sense. Um, but I think that it would definitely be defence first system for Madrid. That's their strength. Um, but then at the same time, even when they played Sociedad, Real Sociedad weekend, like they didn't, they weren't playing it with a holding midfielder. Like Casemiro didn't start the game for the first time in quite a while. They had Tony Cruz and Luka Modric with Odegaard as kind of number ten, and like that's on paper a very attacking midfield. So yeah, I think that it would be a game by game scenario. But I think Zidane is very very confident in his team selection and the, the individuals that he favors, and I think he's definitely going to favor um, a strong spine to the team as opposed to. You know, pandering to clamor, public clamor for you know overlooked attacking players. I know um, he wasn't hugely involved last year, but do you expect to see a little bit more out of Eden Hazard this year? Um, I'm not sure if he's he, you know, kind of out of Zidane's good books already, but there's already been um, kind of suggestions that he's come back overweight and not really up to um, match fitness. Is he another one that's going to kind of have that weird? on-off relationship with, uh, with the manager? Um, I don't think so because he idolizes Zidane. You know, he really he always <laughs> loves Zidane. So I think that, and Zidane really likes him too, by all accounts. Like, I think his issues last season were more to with fitness than form. Like, he kept getting these small, niggly injuries. Um, but as you mentioned, he did come back overweight last season. As rumors, he came back overweight again this season. He's not someone who looks after his condition that well. Um, but I think that when he does return to full fitness, he'll be given a lot of kind of creative uh, license in this team because yeah, there are wide options, you know, Marcus Asensio and Vinicius and Rodrigo aren't of the same caliber of player as him. So I think that if he can get himself fit and get himself firing in all cylinders, I think he'll be an important player for mid of the season. I certainly don't think that he's the same relationship with Zidane as James or Gareth Bale. Mm. Moving on to Barcelona, and we don't need to go into everything that has happened over the past couple of months, but I suppose the main thing now in the midst of all the change is Messi is staying. And no matter how unhappy he is or how much he wants to leave, it really can't be overstated enough how good he is at the end of the day. What's the outlook for Barcelona this season, Alan? Um, I'm sure they'll convince themselves and they'll try to convince everyone that they want to compete for the title, but... Is that going to be a bit easier said than done, given what's going on over the past few months? It's no doubt that the club are in absolute turmoil, you know. Um, like, I think to delve properly into the behind-the-scenes mess of Barcelona could be its own podcast. And I think everybody kind of knows the basics, you know, and the trouble in the boardroom, the trouble with Ronald Koeman and his kind of standoff with kind of the senior players. I think Arturo Vidal is just showing Inter Milan this evening. Um, so... I would be very, very, very surprised if they mounted a serious title challenge. But at the same time, as you mentioned, they do have Lionel Messi. And any team that has Lionel Messi is going to ha have a shot, you know, because he's the best player in the world, in my opinion, he still is. Even last season was his worst season statistically since before Guardiola came to Barcelona in 2008. But he was still, his numbers are still off the charts, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that... They'll still be a very good team on their day. They have talent up the squad. Um, but I don't think they'll have what it takes to match 
um, Real Madrid for sure. Do you expect many more incomings? Um, I know there's going to be a lot of turnover and like you said tonight, Arturo Vidal is off. Um, there's reports that Nelson Semedo is leaving for Wolves um, and Max Ahrens is going to come in from Norwich. And in fairness, I know it's Norwich, but that seems like an upgrade from what I've seen of Semedo over the past couple of years. Um, do you see any kind of major signings coming in or are they just, just kind of fighting fires with who they have at the moment, you know, the likes of Suarez and, and, and um, players that they want to off- offload? Um, I definitely don't, don't think there'll be a marquee player coming in because I don't think they, I don't think they have the finances for it. Basically, I think I could see somebody like Memphis Depay or maybe Genie One Album coming in, and I think they would improve the squad. They would improve the team, um, but I don't think they'll improve the team to the degree where they are, where they want to be. You know, I think the season will be very much be a season of transition, and um, for when the new president and the new board comes in next summer. Um, and then we decide what's happening with Lionel Messi as well. Uh, and also, I was surprised because I thought that this season would be a season for somebody like Ricky Puig or Anzu Fati. But then, as we've learned, uh, Koeman seems to want uh, Ricky Puig out of the club. So I think Barcelona fans are really kind of, you know, at sixes and sevens at the moment because they expected a season of transition where you can maybe blood the young talent. But now that doesn't even seem to be happening. So. I don't know. It's really not a good situation for Barcelona, to be honest. What's the perception of Koeman as manager? Because he kind of mixes this kind of Barcelona fantasy of being a, a Cruyff disciple as well as being a former player of the club. But yet we've seen his comments about Pooch. He's not been overly successful uh, in his last few managerial jobs. Is he seen as the guy who can take Barcelona forward or is he seen as somebody who's just filling the void for now um like you said it's going to be a season of transition so we know how the barca board behaves are they just kind of throwing him to the slaughter for now yeah i think that he was selected because of his status as a player in barcelona's history like he's the man who won them that first european cup in 1992 he's a legend of the club you know and so i think that he was chosen because he has the strength of character to combat these big personalities in dressing room because Kike Setien, for instance, couldn't do it. Like he's won a Copa del Rey as a player, um, or sorry, a Super Copa de España as a player with Athletic Bilbao, I think it was, in the mid 80s. That's the only thing he's ever won in his managerial and playing career. So how could he tell players who have won, you know, multiple Champions League titles, multiple league titles, you know, the World Cup, what to do? It was never going to work. And that was definitely a massive feature of Barcelona towards the back end of last season. Um, the perception of him as a manager isn't very complimentary because he came to Valencia towards the tail end of the 2000s and he was tasked with a similar job where he basically came in and got rid of several senior players who maybe overstayed their welcome after the successful uh, Rafa Vinas team in the early 2000s. And he won the Copa del Rey, but their league form was very, very poor. So there, there's not good memories of him from within Spain. And then also his statements that Antin was successful, but he was a disaster at Everton. Like, I think that Everton's malaise is much documented, you know, the signings they brought into the club. But it was him alongside uh, director of football, Steve Walsh, who did the most of the damage there. Like, if there's anybody who's done more damage for Everton Football Club in the last, you know, 15 years, it's Ronald Koeman. 
So I think that we could be on course for a very, very fiery season because Kumin is a very strong character. So I could envision him butting heads with the kind of the hierarchy of the Camp Nou dressing for sure. And then um, obviously Messi now after his, uh, his, his, his summer is back playing, he's back training. How do you think he's going to go this year? Will it be kind of like a silent protest and we won't see um, him at 100% or do you just think he's just going to get on with it? He, you know, he's he's obviously the best player in the world and he'll be wanting to, to prove that to everyone for another year. Yeah, I think he's a highly competitive individual. I think his personality has been something that's been neglected in the last, you know, 15 years of his career because he's kind of viewed as this very kind of quiet guy, basically, as opposed to maybe Cristiano Ronaldo or Neymar. But I think that he's a really competitive animal, and I think that he'd be very, very angry with how the summer has went. And I'd imagine, although I can't be sure, that he'd be going to the season all guns blazing to try and really show that he still has it, that he's still the best player in the world. And that next summer, should he wish, he can still join, say, Manchester City, and cut it in the Premier League for sure, you know. So I think that he'll be very motivated to perform personally. Uh, also, I think that Barcelona have a history of kind of responding well to adversity. If you remember in 2013, and um, the year when well Pep left in t- 2012, but between 2012 and 2013, uh, Barcelona won the league with almost a record points total. And also in 2017, when Neymar went to PSG, they won the league again, you know. So I think they have a history of responding well when the chips are down and when the expectations are low. So, and especially with a, t- a squad this talented. So I think that, you know, there'll be no mugs this season. They'll be finishing fourth, like some people predicted for me. Anyway. We'll move on quickly to Atletico, um, Alan. The last time we saw them, they were pretty poor against RB Leipzig in the Champions League. And I think the perception now is starting to suggest that there might be a bit of Diego Simeone fatigue setting in. Um, over the past couple of years of, you know, how, how intense they play. They haven't really strengthened the squad this summer, aside from Yannick Carrasco um, signing on a permanent deal. How do you view Atletico's outlook this year? Um, I think Atletico last season was always a strange one for them because Simeone had enabled it a season of transition from the beginning. So uh, I think expectations were always going to be low for last season and they matched those expectations in the first half especially. But after lockdown, when they returned, they were a different team, domestically at least. Like Obviously, they beat Liverpool, but they played very, very well towards the back end of last season and looked like the Atletico of old, you know. Um, they're linked with Luis Suarez. Those rumours are getting louder and louder by the day. And I think that if he does join, I think there'll be a serious title challenge this season because I know it's tempting to label them a case of a team and a club that's tired of an overbearing manager. But a lot of new players came into the squad last season, players like Kieran Trippier, Joao Felix, you know, so there was new blood there. Um, I think that if Suarez does join, I think he's still an assassin, he's still a deadly marksman. Um, I think that he'll improve the team greatly. And I think he'll help players like Joao Felix uh, flourish truly. So I'd be optimistic for them. Because even looking back in history, back in 2013, David Villa was discarded by the Barcelona hierarchy. He joined Atletico and the next season they won the league, you know. So, yeah, I'd actually be optimistic for Atletico's chances this season. I think that they're being underestimated when it comes to the title race. 
And uh, Phil here, uh, you mentioned Jerry Felix there, um, who obviously made a big splash at, at Benfica and Atletico paid out a, a really pretty penny to, to sign him on. With Ronaldo obviously having left the league uh, a couple of seasons ago and, and Messi going through everything, he's gone through a Barca. Do you think this season presents a bit of a chance for Felix to kind of take the league nearly as his own and kind of mark himself out as the next generation's superstar? Yeah, I think... Joel Felix is an interesting case because like he didn't play that many games for Benfica when he was there and he was he's still only 20 years old you know he's a very young guy very slight guy I think he's got a lot of potential a lot of ability I think you saw that in the Leipzig game I thought that when he you know kind of turned it on towards the end you did see him play with a different dimension and I think that he'd be much better better for the experience of last year so yeah I think this is definitely a good opportunity as as for Annie um, for him to really kind of seize that mantle as the next best thing and consolidate his potential. And I think he'd be the player to watch the season for sure. Just a quick one. Uh, Cholo Simeone, he's definitely one of the most intense managers in Europe, if not the world, and he's one of the best paid. But do you think that Atletico perhaps needs some fresh ideas at this stage? He's very stubborn in his approach. He's really struggled to integrate new signings. Um, uh, and they really struggle to kind of blow teams away with the talent that he has at his disposal. Do you think there's a chance this season that they'll part ways? I think if they do part ways, it'll be him leaving. I don't think he'll ever get sacked. I think he's done too much for the club for that to happen. Um, one interesting dynamic is that Elmano Burgess, who's a really important figure in uh, Simeone's life and career, kind of his right-hand man, uh, left uh, recently, so there's been a transition for Simeone in terms of how to integrate new backroom staff, and also he actually tested positive for uh, coronavirus recently, so he's been monitoring the sessions from afar. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely a difficult one because I think any any player who is working with someone like Simeone with those you know legendary fitness sessions, you become tired of him, you know, much like Manny became tired of Guardiola. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting season for me. I think for Atletico, like I, I feel they'll do well. I feel they'll challenge Madrid for the title, especially if they get Luis Suarez. But I could also envision a situation where, you know, maybe the league campaign falters out, and then Simeone calls the day at the end of the season looking for a new challenge. You know, so it, it's going to be interesting for sure. Alan, if we're talking about the, the big three uh, having question marks over them to a greater or lesser degree, is there any hope for teams outside that three to, to make a break and to e- either push into the top three or maybe even transfer a title? Like Obviously, you're talking about people like Sevilla there, but is, is there anyone you see as potentially making a break to challenge that kind of three-headed monster at the top of the Liga? Yeah, well, I mean, Sevilla finished 11 points at Atletico last season. They were both at 70 points. Um, it was Atletico the superior goal that got them in third place. So Sevilla are definitely the obvious option. Um, like, they're a really interesting club because they have a really strong collective spirit. Like, I would say it's unmatched throughout La Liga and in many clubs in Europe as well. Um, like, last season, they obviously had a strong league campaign, especially after lockdown. They came back and they were unbeaten for, I think it was 19 games, something like that. Um, so there's definitely a sense of opportunity for them, you know, especially after winning the Europa League, for instance. And the only thing for Sevilla is that they're lacking a clear goal scorer. They use De Jong and he had some heroics towards the end of the Europa League campaign, but he's not good enough for a, a team that has ambitions to challenge for the title for me. 
um, Yusef and Nisri as well as a talented player, a hard runner, but not the player you want leading the line for a top, you know, champion of the league club. Um, and then also there's the uncertainty in the market with, you know, Diego Carlos and Jules Koundé and even Lucas Ocampos to a lesser extent who've been linked with moves away this summer. Uh, and obviously they've lost Sergio Reguilón as well uh, to Spurs. Um, so they brought in Marcus Acuna, left back from Sporting, um, who you'd expect to be a success given the uh, depth of Manchi's research. Um, but I think that striker is needed if they're really to motor on and really challenge the big three and Athletic uh, and Real Madrid especially for the title. Um, outside of Sevilla, Villarreal are the obvious option. They recruited very well over the summer. Um, but their performances in the first two games of the season haven't been great. Uh, they just look a bit disjointed, kind of missing something um, that will see them, you know, make up the 10-point gap that was between them and Sevilla uh, last season. Um, they poached Danny Parejo and Francis Coughlin, who are Valencia's two starting central midfielders. They poached them directly from the club. Um, and they made several really good signings too. Uh, but then I don't think that they have what it takes to chance for a title. I think they could be in for a shell for a top four if they gel quickly, but I don't think they'll have any chance of trying for a title. And then beyond them, Real Sociedad were very strong in the first half of last season, but were very, very poor after lockdown. And they lost Martin Odegaard to Real Madrid. He returned there after a season loan. They signed David Silva, but... I'm not sure they have what it takes to really make a break for the top four. Uh, Valencia are in a state of crisis that makes Barcelona's crisis look mild by comparison. Mm. Um, their problems have been well documented. They're selling, I think they sold four of the starting 11 and they're looking at maybe selling another one. I think Gerardo Moreno was linked with a move away. Um, so yeah, and then beyond that, it's kind of a hard one. You have, you know, clubs like Granada, who had a very good season last year, and they've started the season very well. They're actually top at the moment. Um, mm. They've been playing in the Europa League, and it'll be difficult for them to balance uh, those European commitments playing on Thursday nights with a strong league form. Um, and then you have clubs like Real Betis, who look very strong so far. They're in second place at the moment. They have a very talented squad that is much better than the 15-place finish they had last season. Um, and with Melvin Pellegrini, they have a really good, you know, experienced coach who can coax the best out of the, the talent they have. You know, like Sergio Canales, Nabil Fekir, um, Mark Bartra. You know, there's several good players there. Mm. Uh, but I think the top four will stay as is. To be honest, I think the only competitive competition will be for the Europa League places. I don't think that anybody can overhaul Sevilla in fourth. Alan, swinging back to Sevilla there quickly and. They're well used to kind of fighting fires in the transfer market over the years. They kind of have that kind of setting club um, about them. But, you know, they continue to, to get success in the Europa League so regularly. Um, having watched them in the Europa League, I think it's fair to say Eva Benea was exceptional. Um, ran the show at times and he's left now. How big was it getting back from Rakitic um, from Barcelona? Obviously, he's, he's up in age as well, but... You know, he's a bit of a club legend himself. Can he have the same influence that um, the Benega did? Um, yeah, it's a tough one because they're very different players. Like, Eber Benega is a really, really talented footballer. You know, like, to watch him, especially after the lockdown, is like watching a magician. Like, that's his nickname, you know, the magician. But, like, 
his close control, his range of passing, just his way of playing is like, it's beautiful to watch, you know? And like, he's the kind of character who, when he's on his game, he's as good as anybody. Like his career has been marred by, you know, strange incidents, like his car rolled over his foot and he got caught doing things on webcam that he shouldn't be doing when he was young fella. Uh, he set his car on fire, like there's a long list of things that he's done that has been quite erratic and not, maybe not conducive to the perfect professional life. But on the pitch, he's supreme when he's in the mood. And he was superb towards the end of last season, especially in the uh, Rakitic is different. He's kind of maybe less creative. Uh, but then that's also tied into the role he had with Barcelona because he didn't have the creative responsibility they had at Sevilla in his first stint at the club where he was kind of playing almost as number 10 much more close to the goal, kind of box-to-box player. So I think that Rakitic will bring in a lot of winning experience, championship mentality kind of thing. Um, I don't think he'll have the same creative influence as Benega did um, in terms of providing assists. Benega was level with Jesus Navas with seven assists last year. But I think that he has played a different role to the role he played for Barcelona where he was kind of labelled a sack of potatoes. So I think he'd be <laughs> coming back to Sevilla with the burning and desire to prove them wrong, prove that he's still a top player, he's still capable of dominating the midfield and running a game. So I think his game would be more of a hybrid between the, Sevilla, the racket we saw at Sevilla and the racket we saw at Barcelona, somewhere in between. Um, and also he retired from international duty yesterday. So kind of underlines his commitment to the club this season, you know, so I think it'd be very interesting. Looking at the results um, from the weekend, and I saw Celta Vigo beat Valencia 2-1 and Iago Aspas uh, with two goals. And i seen him described on Twitter as the Lionel Messi of the bottom half of the table. And I suppose for you know for Premier League fans and Liverpool fans especially, how, how good is Aspas? Because his stats are, are phenomenal since he left the club. They are phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I think in the last seven years, he scored a third of their goals, which is an unbelievable <laughs> And like it had not just been you know you know tappings and you know two 0 victories they've been really important goals in many instances that have saved them from relegation for instance two seasons ago in dramatic fashion like he's the kind of player who's really vital for Celta Vigo and like Celta Vigo are an interesting club because they have a very strong fan base and on paper they should be a mid table if not top half club. But they just can't get it right. And every season we see flashes of ability, but they never can maintain it over a long period of time. And they'll inevitably be fighting relegation, at least, I'd imagine. Like, I imagine maybe a lower half, kind of maybe mid-table finish. Alan, I, I, I think it's fair to say that over the last 10 years, we could kind of regard the Liga as maybe the best league in the world, um, certainly with Barcelona and, and Real and Atleti to a, to a lesser degree kind of leading that charge. And fueled obviously by the the national team of Spain that had such success, kind of that that, that late two thousands early two thousand and tens period. Uh, but as those players kind of shuffle towards the end of their careers, and we see like we spoke about the kind of lack of big superstar signings to La Liga, it's probably fair to say the league feels it's on a bit of a down cycle at the minute compared to Premier League or the Bundesliga. Do you think that's just a natural cyclical thing, or do you think it kind of speaks to? the model in Spain that rewards the bigger clubs more with TV money and that sort of stuff. Um, do you think it's a natural thing or do you think the way the league is set up has kind of led to the point where we are where the whole league feels a little hollowed out? Well, I think it's a good point. Um, I think that 
the success that Spanish football has achieved in the last 15 years is, is actually unprecedented in the history of football. Like I read today that since 2005, a Spanish, either a Spanish club or the Spanish national team has won a major trophy every season, a major international trophy every season. So whether it's the Europa League or the Champions League or the World Cup or the European Championships, they've won a major trophy every single year, um, which is remarkable, you know. Um, but I think it actually is tied into something that Arturo Vidal said recently. He was asked about the ability of the Barcelona, of La Masaya, the Barcelona Academy, to produce such top talent year on, year out. And he said, actually, no, that's, I think it's overblown. I think they had one really good generation, but you've players now coming into the team like Ricky Puig, I'd imagine, and others like Sergio Roberto, um, who think they're, they've made it basically because they're a young Barcelona La Masaya product, but they're actually not. They have to earn the stripes like anybody else. And I think that in many ways, Spanish football is a victim of the success that they've had. You know, with the teams that they produced in 2008, 2010, 2012, international competitions, and also the great Barcelona kind of homegrown team. It created this world where people expected it to keep coming and for it to be normal, but it's not possible. You know, it really isn't possible. Like, and I think regarding the question about the model of Spanish football, it's a difficult one because like one of the reasons I live in Seville is because it's one of the only cities in Spain alongside maybe the Basque country where the majority of supporters support the club of the region. So say in Andalusia, the favorite team is Real Betis and in Sevilla, the city itself, the favorite team is Sevilla. And in the, in the Basque country, it's athletic uh, club. Whereas for the rest of the country, they really choose between Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's in the, it runs along political lines as much as football lines, but there's not the same local pride on a large scale as there is maybe in England, for instance, or in Germany. Do you know? So I think that that's reflected in the TV money. And also I think that it, we have a tendency to look at the elites of a league and measure its health by that. And I think that the elite in Spain was so high for so long. You know, you, you really the world's best players playing in Spain every season that we could look at the rest of the league and maybe kind of it diminished importance in relation to it. But the rest of the league was always quite strong as well. Like it was, it's a very strong league technically with depth everywhere. But I think that like even this evening we saw the uh, Real Sociedad centre-back Diego Llorente joining uh, Leeds in a 20 million deal. Like mm. a newly promoted club taking an important player for a club to finish sixth last season or maybe on the up again this year. Like that's a big statement, you know. So, and also we saw, um, you know, just the recruitment this summer in England especially has kind of been off the charts, I think. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's definitely kind of a shift happening, you know. Brilliant stuff, Ellen. We'll be sure to get you back on as the season unfolds. I'm sure there'll be plenty more to talk about in Spanish football. There usually is. So thanks for joining the show this evening. No worries. Thanks for having me.